Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science, and welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Erin Snyder, Texas A&M University, about her new book, Marketing Democracy. Then we talk to Stephen Brook about an article that he co-authored with Elizabeth Nugent on who votes after a coup, which looks at Egyptian voting behavior. Finally, we talked to May Asadani at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy about Allah Abdel Fattah and the problems with Egyptian political prisoners and human rights. Uh, thank you for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's book segment, we're joined by Aaron Snyder of Texas A&M University, author of the new Cambridge University Press book, Marketing Democracy, the Political Economy of Democracy Aid in the Middle East. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. I'm thrilled to be here. So tell us about this book. Yeah, so in a nutshell, this book is about the construction and practice of democracy assistance uh, in the Middle East. Um, just a, a wee bit of a, a brief background uh, of sort of the motivations uh, for this book. Uh, so a million years ago, uh, a million years ago being 2006, um, there was a lot of um, really enthusiastic discussion, at least in the United States, uh, about promoting democracy um, in the Middle East. Uh, of course, this is in the wake of 9-11, um, a renewed effort by the Bush administration to much more aggressively uh, focus on democracy promotion in the region. At the same time, there were a lot of really interesting uh, scholarly contributions from political scientists, not necessarily focused on the Middle East, but really wanting to understand the impact uh, of spending on democracy aid worldwide. So in 2006, um, I was really intrigued by um, a sophisticated study that was commissioned by USAID, which is the principal um, US agency charged with sort of managing democracy aid, um, that was trying to assess the impact of its spending on democracy. In short, does spending on democracy uh, aid result in democracy? Um, so uh, the authors of the study did a, an extremely sophisticated cross-national quantitative study uh, trying to answer just this question. And so the authors concluded basically that yes, spending on democracy aid works, um, except in what they call difficult contexts, which again, not very much elaborated on in that initial study, difficult contexts, um, including the Middle East, right? So um, as I was beginning my doctoral research, uh, the sort of the foundations for what would become this book, I was intrigued by this. Also in the context of, again, this renewed push to promote democracy, uh, in the region. So um, I wanted to understand this question, okay, well, if this is supposedly working everywhere else, why isn't this working um, in the Middle East? Um, but also some uh, somewhat of a more fundamental question that scholars weren't really addressing head on, but which seemed to be important, which is why would authoritarian regimes in general even allow this aid, right? So if scholars of democracy assistance are saying that this the intent of this aid is to challenge authoritarian regimes, you know, why would these regimes allow aid that's fundamentally meant to, you know, for lack of a better term, destroy them? Um, so these were sort of the big questions uh, that I was interested in exploring. But when I first started going to the field, 
Um, and Egypt was the first place I started working um, on this aid and doing initial field work. Um, there were a whole host of other questions that were raised for me that didn't seem to be really addressed in the literature at all. So scholars were asking this big important question, does this aid work? But the ways in which they were trying to answer that question didn't seem to be capturing what I saw on the ground as more complex questions uh, and more complex actions that were going on. So this book in essence was, is my attempt to, to sort of um, um, open what uh, many people have called sort of the black box of democracy assistance. And when we talk about the black box of democracy assistance, you know, we're thinking about um, all of the people, all of the different actors that are engaged in this aid. From my perspective on both the donor side, so my book is focused on the US, so focusing on the actors involved on the domestic side in the US and those involved in the field, right? So in the recipient state. So we're thinking about practitioners, we're thinking about diplomats, uh, we're thinking about activists, contractors, the sorts of people that are actually carrying out the programs uh, for USAID and in some cases the State Department. So it was in general motivated by an under by my attempt to really understand how this aid was actually working in practice uh, on the ground. And the sort of answer to all of this is that, you know, it's not working well, which is not a surprise to scholars of the Middle East. Um, and in the book I show uh, amongst other things, um, but most importantly, I think how this form of aid can work to strengthen rather than challenge authoritarian regimes over time. So before we get into, you know, there's so much in the book, it's so rich, but maybe we could start by having you talk a little bit about what democracy aid actually is. Like, what, what are we actually talking about when we talk about democracy aid? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and one that doesn't, uh, as with this entire area, lend itself to easy answers. Uh, so many scholars have conceptualized democracy aid in different ways. So most of us, I think, when we think about democracy aid, uh, we uh, think about assistance to support uh, elections uh, in other countries, uh, to support uh, civil society actors. Um, that aid can also go to support judicial processes, rule of law programs. It can also go to support media programs, right? So for example, to uh, support uh, freedom of expression, um, to empower different forms of, of media, social media, particularly in the last 15 years. Uh, et cetera. So these are very broad areas, um, and that's one way of conceptualizing democracy assistance. Um, and other scholars, you know, have argued maybe for a more nuanced way of thinking about democracy aid, right? So um, the U.S. has often been characterized as supporting um, primarily procedural forms of democracy assistance, liberal ways of thinking about democracy aid. Um, and other donors, other organizations, and in particular other donor countries, um, and here the Scandinavian countries maybe figure in more here, uh, of focusing on more social democratic ways of thinking about democracy aid. So here it's not to say that aid for elections isn't important, um, but some scholars argue that these donors maybe think of aid in a more holistic way, in a more substantive understanding of democracy. Uh, so that would uh, be focusing on maybe more foundational elements of what they argue is important for democratization, uh, like education, literacy programs, thinking about the social impact uh, of adjustment, thinking about how economic programs uh, affect average citizens, et cetera. Uh, so again, uh, just a different way of thinking about democracy aid, but that in general is sort of what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. 
So before we get into the substance, then tell us a little, little bit about the research that went into the book and, um, you know, how you pulled together all of this, uh, I think you call it like an archaeology of the hidden, the hidden black box or whatever. Um, you know, tell us what you did and, and how that informs the book. Yeah. So initially, again, back in uh, the mid 2000s, 2007 ish, 2008, when when my field research started to really um, uh, take off, um, I had this very naive idea that if only I were to be able to find um, all of the details of the specific programs uh, USAID uh, was working on in Egypt and Morocco, which are two of the case studies in the book. Um, then I will somehow be able to illuminate what's actually happening on the ground, right? So finding out, and, and at this point too, you know, when people would look at, you know, what the U.S. had spent in Egypt, Morocco, Jordan, et cetera, you would mostly be working with an aggregate number. So you would say maybe, for example, we know that $22 million has been spent on democracy aid in Egypt, right? But what does that mean, right? Where is that money going? What kinds of activities is it, is it uh, supporting? Uh, who's getting the money? Right. So in this book, um, I advance what I call a political economy framework to understand how this aid is working. Um, and a lot of that was motivated by the frustration of not being able to find easily um, the exact details of this money, what the what programs are being funded and who is getting the money. Right. And it's a foundational concern for all political economists that if you want to understand how anything works, whether it's democracy aid, whether it's politics in the United States, you know, you should look to the money, right? Who's mm -hmm. getting what, who's bene who benefits, et cetera, right? So just foundational questions to understand how this uh, aid works. But I couldn't find that information as easily as I wanted to, right? And so that to me signaled a more, a far more interesting uh, study. So a lot of my work has been very much inspired by um, interpretive studies in general or interpretive, interpretivist approaches to political science. Um, and thinking about and trying to um, consider sort of what's going on in the backstage uh, of democracy assistance in general. And that also helps us, I think, to understand what's going on and why things maybe why maybe things aren't working in the way uh, that we want them to. Right. So that, you know, that initial like I think naivety about thinking I'm just going to find all the information I want is motivated me to the question of, well, why can't I get this aid, right? If this, if this is about democracy assistance, shouldn't this aid be transparent? Shouldn't this information be very clear just for anyone? Um, and this aid, the information on this aid exists, but finding it is enormously difficult. Um, and that's a function in some ways of bureaucratic politics um, and finding a lot of information uh, from the government in general. So I was interested in expanding again, what I was looking at. So spending, I thought, Okay, well, I need to spend much more time talking with people over time who have been engaged in this aid. So this is around 2007, um, and a lot of the focus on, was on democracy aid in the Middle East at this time. But this aid was actually had been going on for far longer, right? So the initial uh, democracy assistance programs, the evolution of them began in the early 1990s in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, when the US um, was really starting to focus on this area in general worldwide. So I wanted not only to understand what was going on at that moment in the mid 2000s, but to go backwards, right? And to talk with as many people as I could that had been engaged with this aid. Um, so one approach, it was to simply interview and track down as many individuals who were engaged with this aid at 
every conceivable level um, and to basically, uh, you know, exploit as much archival resources as I could as well, too. So um, looking at information on USAID and State Department engagement in this area through the National Security Archives, um, filing Freedom of Information Act request, uh, which was its own frustrations, uh, which isn't surprising to people who work on this area, um, but which also um, eventually, after many years, uh, did result in great information coming back from that route. And also trying to understand the professional networks that were involved with this aid over time. So I was able to uh, exploit a lot of information uh, that's been uploaded um, on LinkedIn, which many people know is a professional networking site, um, to kind of get a sense of um, how people that have been working in the field of democracy and governance um, have been working in particular areas over time, to see the circularity of uh, networks, uh, to kind of give us an idea of why we see, in some cases, one particular form of democracy over others. Um, so again, it was an attempt really for me to understand what was going on in a very nuanced way on the ground, but also what was going on in Washington as well. So that's actually, um, you know, a good segue into, you know, kind of one of the big things you do is to talk about kind of the institutions, like who is actually doing the democracy assistance. And you talk about USAID, the State Department, uh, there's MEPI uh, in the mid 2000s. And then you have this like small number of NGOs who are the primary implementers of a lot of a lot of this. Walk us through this a little bit and how this evolves in terms of not just democracy aid in the abstract, but but who's doing it and what are the institutional politics of it? Yeah, so just really quickly again for, for the purpose of listeners, you know, one of the main contributions of this book is to uh, again offer a framework for how to look at look at this aid and how to understand a couple of questions. Um, why we only see particular forms of democracy um, underlying some of these democracy aid programs, um, why authoritarian regimes allow this aid, and how to understand the limited impact of this. So um, I was inspired by the work of Peter Hall, Kathleen McNamara, and other political economists um, who look at ideational aspect, ideational forms of political economy, interest-based accounts, institutional accounts, um, to try and understand what's going on. Um, because again, this is an incom incredibly complex um, field. And again, one of my motivations in writing this book is that the complexity of what's actually going on the ground wasn't really captured in scholarly accounts, right? So in the Middle East, I think more critical accounts of democracy assistance will say, you know, this aid hasn't worked because it was never meant to work, right? So implying that there's someone in a back office in USAID who is intentionally nefariously trying to make these programs not work or do terrible things. Um, and I'm sympathetic to the, those critical approaches. And I think, you know, there's much that's quite, quite spot on about it, um, but it overly simplifies, um, you know, the actual um, nuts and bolts of what's going on. Um, so over time, um, you know, in the early 1990s, and I'll use Egypt as my example here, AID, USAID was really trying um, to put together a democracy assistance program that was sophisticated, um, that was thoughtful, sensitive to political context uh, of what was going on in Egypt and in other parts of the Middle East. Um, and I was able to find in my research lots of details um, from conference proceedings, workshops, 
from some of our senior colleagues in the field who were part of these discussions, right? So AID is reaching out to Middle East experts, it's reaching out to democracy experts for their input as they're beginning to design these programs. In other words, tell us what we need to know about the Middle East, tell us what we should be thinking about. And maybe not surprisingly, these scholars are saying, mm, I think you need to be careful with the assumptions about these programs. Um, and one assumption at that time was that by focusing on economic reform, by focusing on uh, market reforms, that sort of the democracy unicorns would sort of you know, be unleashed in the Middle East. Um, you know, and those scholars at the time were saying, this is, you know, this is not how these regimes are operating. Um, you know, authoritarian regimes are not following um, these reforms, are not invested in the mechanisms, you know, by which economic reforms might lead to democratization. So again, there were lots of warnings at the outset of not to do particular things. Mm -hmm. At the same time in the 1990s, um, USAID was pretty much being gutted um, by a wave of Republican sentiment in Congress who you know, saw foreign aid as basically a form of welfare. And I'm thinking about Jesse Helms in particular at this time frame. Um, so in the mid to late 1990s, as USAID is really trying to um, support these programs, it's being sort of gutted by Congress, right? So a lot of uh, its experts were lost. I think about a thousand of its development experts were lost. They begin to start contracting out uh, their assistance uh, to for and not-for-profit actors. Um, they start to become subsumed under the State Department, of course, which has very different prerogatives about the kind of work it wants to do. Um, and so that story in the domestic arena um, has consequences for what goes on in the field uh, as well. So people in the field, of course, are, are you know, wanting again to put together programs that are reflective of local context, um, that make sense with what's going on, but they're being challenged again by the fact that they have no resources in some ways uh, to do things. Um, and they're also being, you know, they're encountering challenges because of the states, you know, in which they're working, right? So. Egypt, of course, is an authoritarian regime, um, was then, is now. Um, and, you know, how do you promote democracy in this environment? Um, and so there are, again, rhetorically lots of, um, you know, expansive promises, commitments to wanting to, to promote certain kinds of activities, but on the ground, precious few resources to do them. Um, and not a lot of space in which to, to carry out these activities as well. And lots of challenges and tensions uh, with their counterparts in the Egyptian government in doing these things. Well, one of the really interesting things in the book is how well you document the, the extent to which Egypt and, and also Morocco, that they actually, but mostly Egypt, they're actually negotiating with the United States over what kinds of, you know, uh, programs they can run, which yeah. is globally speaking quite unusual. Yeah, and I think this is, again, you know, there, what also was, what for me missing at some point in the scholarly literature is this, you know, the the, the extent or the role in which uh, recipient regimes have um, in the construction, you know, of this aid. And what I show in the book is that, you know, Egypt and Morocco are both um, different regimes, obviously, um, but they both were able to use uh, their sort of uh, strategic leverage to be able to dilute the substance 
of the US's democracy aid over time. Um, and I show that you know, from the 1990s uh, you know, all the way up to uh, the Arab uprisings as well. Um, and again, you know, that raises lots of important questions uh, for democracy scholars, people who care about this kind of work. Well, if regimes are able to do this and able to dilute the substance to the extent that you know, arguably maybe some of these reform, these aid programs are doing nothing but making the, these regimes more efficient, then perhaps you know, this particular donor should not be engaging in this activity, right? So maybe this is um, an argument for different approaches to thinking about democracy assistance. Maybe it's um, uh, an argument for maybe multi, multilateral um, involvement engagement if the donor has this bind. So there's two moments, uh, you know, you, you talk about the Clinton years, but really, you know, to, after 9-11, there's this real push to, you know, make democracy promotion central to the Bush administration's response. And you get the Middle East Partnership Initiative and the Freedom Agenda and that sort of thing. And then after 2011, the Arab uprisings, uh, the Obama administration uh, really wants to, you know, push to support these democratic transitions and to, you know, kind of redeem the promise of the uprisings. And your book really kind of walks through how each of those fails. Tell us a little bit about those and like how that plays out in terms of the political economy and institutional design that you've documented. Yeah, again, I think that, you know, one of the, the things I think that's so important for, for scholars or anyone who's interested in this, in this form of aid, whether in the Middle East or just in what we would call politically restrictive environments, um, are the different actors that are involved and the different constraints that actors feel, right? So in the US, there are multiple uh, actors within the foreign aid bureaucracy that affect how this aid works on the ground. Uh, so Congress is the big obvious source, right? In terms of controlling um, where the money is going and what money is expended. There's the State Department, uh, there's USAID, uh, and there are other actors as well. And again, there are people on the ground. Uh, so, you know, each administration, right? Democracy Aid has had enormous bipartisan support, um, you know, pretty much I would say since the 1980s, if we even go back to the Reagan era. Um, and so that's been consistent over time. Um, the significant change that we saw occur happened with the Bush administration after 9-11, right? And so for a brief period, um, there was more, su more support for spending uh, far more on this particular area, um, but I would definitely say not a, no great improvements in really understanding um, you know, uh, what to fund, how things work in general. Uh, so more, I would say, uh, an enormous you know, uh, volume change and enthusiasm but without understanding basically what people were doing, to be quite honest. I mean, you know, in the book, I sort of document some absurd things that people in the administration were saying that they thought would help democracy, including, you know, at one point, uh, translating the Magna Carta into Arabic, um, you know, as if, if that's going to do something significant, um, you know, demeaning, uh, you know, programs that AID had been doing for years. I mean, AID had a um, uh, a trash collecting uh, program uh, that was conceptualized as part of local organization, uh, but which people in the Bush administration thought was worthless. And so again, sort of very, uh, a much more of a focus on what they would call sexier, flashier programs that oftentimes had no connection with reality or what was going on in the ground. And so that sort of, uh, you know, in 2006, that changed. 
um, demonstrably when uh, Hamas won uh, the parliamentary elections in Palestine and the enthusiasm for US democracy aid sort of slipped. We saw an upsurge again, of course, after 2011 um, with this idea that finally there's this moment, there's this critical juncture, this historical historic moment when the US can now do something meaningful. Um, but in reality, as I show in the book, those same institutional challenges within the foreign aid bureaucracy, um, you know, still, you know, created a challenge for doing anything significantly different. Um, and from my perspective, you know, there's a lot, I think, that we learned from this book in terms of not only how this aid works, but why, and this is a pessimistic take, why in some ways it's unlikely to change given those constraints within the U.S. foreign aid bureaucracy. So in a sense, this goes back to your opening framing of the book, which is, you know, there's two ways to interpret this. One is that this is a policy failure because they wanted to do something and they failed to achieve that. And the other interpretation is, no, it's pretty much working exactly as it was designed to work. And, um, you know, and we just misunderstand the public rhetoric for actually signaling what it was supposed to be about. And like, where do you fall in that? within that argument about, uh, you know, the role and function that democracy assistance actually provide or actually plays? Yeah, so I'm, I am, you know, again, as I mentioned before, I am sympathetic um, to critical accounts uh, written by many of my colleagues um, about this aid. Um, and, you know, after spending years of this, you can't come to any other conclusion behind that. Um, however, I, I, again, also having worked with many of, uh, you know, many of uh, the people, both Americans and uh, local nationals. So local nationals refers to both Egyptians and Moroccans who work uh, with USAID missions in both countries, local activists on the ground. Um, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable also saying that this aid doesn't matter either, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you are a local organization and you have received funding that is helping you carry out your mission, just as an example of uh, carrying out human rights research, you know, has that aid worked? Yes, on that level, it has worked and it has helped you, right? The big question of how, how this all adds up is far more complicated. Um, and for me, you know, the, there are so many things that we don't understand still about this aid. And, and one of the things even after finishing this project is, you know, I'm, I'm hoping um, that the ultimate goal uh, of the book, uh, or my goal anyway of it, is to challenge scholars, you know, to think far more substantively about what it means when we talk about impact and effectiveness in democracy aid, but also to think in a much more sophisticated sense about the sort of uh, visions of democracy that are advanced by donors as well, too, right? So, you know, in my research, you know, I, we find lots and lots of documentation about USAID saying these programs aren't working, right? We find those documents and audits that they're doing of their own work back in the late 90s, right? So then the question is, well, why are these programs continuing, right? There's an element of path dependency too, um, but these big questions of why aren't we doing something different? Why aren't, um, why isn't the inst institutional sort of complex changing? to make programs more responsive, more responsive to what local citizens want. Um, why is that so difficult when other donors don't seem to have sort of this constraint and this issue to deal with? Again, it kind of like then brings us back around full circle, which is that you, cause you actually make a, almost a stronger argument that um, in many of these programs actually strengthen the autocratic regimes, uh, not even neutral, but actually working in the opposite direction. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this is, I mean, it's, it's obviously falls into what many scholars of development call sort of the perverse consequences of this aid. You know, I show again that, that, that this aid over time has strengthened these regimes. And that's, you know, you know as I show also, not, you know, something that's happening intentionally in Washington. Mm -hmm. I show again this, this process of how people on the ground are trying to work in a restrictive environment, right? How they're trying to push and have some wiggle room, right? To be able to advance programs that they think um, are worthy, are supportive of what some society actors want. Um, you know, and again, when you ask this question of Middle East scholars, well, why, why aren't these programs working? The obvious answer, you know, certainly at the very outset of this project for me, well, because of security, right? Because these countries um, or some countries in the Middle East are more important geostrategically for geopolitical reasons than other countries, right? And that is that attunes us, right, to how to to attention in the backdrop of this aid and how um, how actors on the ground try and reconcile this. You know, how do you? Is it even if you're allowing a, an authoritarian regime to dilute the substance of your programs, is that okay if you're still Right. in existence in that country, you know, even if it's not ideal, even if that's happening, is the fact that you're still able to maintain a basic program something, right? And this is a big question that many people have. Uh, they acknowledge they're not naive, they're not stupid to mm -hmm. what's going on around them, but they're sort of taking the long view and thinking like, okay, this is not ideal now, but if we're just able to focus on these small areas, on this particular kind of reform, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years, we might be able to build on something. Maybe things in the political environment will change and we'll still have a presence here. Uh, and we, you know, we'll have something to work with. Well, this is the, such an interesting book. There's so much in here. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us yeah. about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Stephen Brook, who, along with Elizabeth Nugent, is the author of the new article, Who Votes After a Coup? Theory and Evidence from Egypt, published in Mediterranean Politics. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this article and uh, what's the major contribution? Yeah, thanks, Mark. So one of the things that uh, Liz and I wanted to do is kind of look at kind of elections under the kind of current military government in Egypt and just kind of examine kind of the, the reasons that we saw some patterns in uh, voting outcomes that we did. And we wanted to kind of cast our net broadly in terms of these outcomes and not just kind of look at, you know, voting for, for Abdel Fattah Sisi or voting for, for his opponent, uh, but also kind of look more broadly at the scope of uh, Egyptians' participation in these contests. And so whether they turned out or abstained and then whether they cast a valid ballot or whether they spoiled it. And so we wanted to kind of just look at some of these questions, run some uh, some, some fairly uh, simple cross-sectional regressions, and just kind of see what we could find about why Egyptians were kind of behaving in these particular ways. And I think the maybe the key insight in, in the article, the kind of the key finding that comes out of it is really based around that the, the prior legacies of what we call partisanship, but I think that's kind of a, a term that might be a little bit up for debate, 
But we basically find that in areas where prior to the military coup, the Muslim Brotherhood or Islamist candidates in particular had performed well in presidential elections, these indicators of engagement in the post-coup elections, namely turnout or abstention or vote spoilage, uh, are, are actually much, much lower. So it seems like this is kind of in line with a narrative of maybe disillusionment or frustration or rejection of the, of the current government. government. Now, what, what's clever about the article in some ways is that you're able to kind of match uh, voting patterns and, and behavior before and after the coup. So tell us a little bit, little bit about how you did that and uh, you know, what's the data you're drawing on yeah, great. I mean, so one of the kind of uh, benefits of the article, as you point out, is that while there is kind of some some slippage at effectively the district level, uh, we can match the presidential elections immediately prior to the, the military coup in July 2013 to the presidential elections immediately after. And that kind of allows us to do, I think, two things that are pretty relevant for us. And here throughout, we're kind of relying on official statistics from the Egyptian Electoral Commission, and we're also uh, relying on uh, census data as well as some other data that, that colleagues have, have generously shared with us. But it allows us to do two things of kind of this, this matched or pre-post design. Uh, one of the things that is really nice is it kind of allows us to control for maybe some baseline measures. And so if you can imagine, right, there's, there's uh, with the story of vote spoilage uh, in particular, you know, there's two stories here. One is that someone is intentionally frustrated and angry with the choices on offer, and so they intentionally will spoil their ballot. The other option, of course, is that they just don't understand the layout, or maybe they're they're illiterate, or maybe they're just unfamiliar with the process, and they unintentionally spoil the ballot. And so if we want to try and estimate something like spoilage as a function of someone's disillusionment or frustration with the process, uh, one of our challenges is to kind of parcel out that non kind of political spoilage. And so what we argue is kind of trying to control for a baseline rate of spoilage prior to the military coup kind of allows us to parcel out that effect of people spoiling it because they're unfamiliar or something like that. So one of the nice things of that, about this approach is that it allows us to, to some extent, control for these baselines. The other nice thing is uh, related to our key finding where we think that pre-coup levels of partisanship have an effect on post-coup election behavior. And so there's a number of ways you could kind of theoretically measure pre-coup partisanship, but I think the obvious one, the one that's most uh, kind of consistent with our post-coup measure is just how somebody voted in a prior presidential election. Now you're doing this at the district level, not at the individual level in terms of how you're drawing these inferences. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, ideally, what we would have is individual level data. So if you can imagine a situation where, you know, maybe we had a panel survey where we were just kind of asking people, the same people pre and post election, what their, you know, what their behavior was. And obviously that's, you know, pretty kind of ethically fraught. We would have concerns about data quality. There's all sorts of other questions in there that, that, uh, that, that would come up. So we kind of adopt the next best thing, which is looking at districts. And so we're looking at kind of aggregated behavior and our analysis, as we point out, is kind of ecological and that raises some, some issues. 
but we do think that it allows us to kind of, you know, get an idea of what's happening, uh, especially in light of the fact that the ideal data we would like to have is, is so far unobtainable. But there's actually a lot of data that is available the way you've done this in terms of like literacy rates and past voting behavior and all of that. So, so it's, it's not just who do they vote for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we try and do in this article is we try and kind of lean into the broader literature on, you know, competitive authoritarianism or elections under authoritarianism and kind of look at kind of other measures that people have identified should be expected to influence people's voting behaviors. And so, as I said, you know, one of the things that kind of motivated us in this article was to look at that 20, uh, the, the post-coup election period and try and just identify some patterns that we saw And it turns out that, you know, in addition to this major partisanship finding, we also find some, I I would say, very tentative but interesting results for these kind of classic variables that scholars of authoritarian elections have looked at, such as, you know, the levels of literacy in a district or the percentage of public sector employment, for instance. You also look at questions related to uh, clientelism, um, experience of terrorism and violence, a number of different tests that you run to kind of see what might really be going on. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we did, we pulled in uh, data on, on protests, which we're kind of very grateful to, to Neil Ketchley for providing that to us. And then we also worked with data on disorder, looking at some of the, the data sets on violence. And I think, you know, one of the things that we find in, in our data set is that it, there's not really a consistent story that we can tell on those results. Sometimes they point in one direction, another time they point in another. They're rarely strong enough to kind of assign, you know, traditional statistical significance to. But what we wanted to kind of do there was account for all of these alternatives for why people may vote in particular ways or why they may behave with regard to elections in particular ways not just in light of our kind of interest in maybe looking at these patterns of partisanship, but also looking at these other classic explanations that scholars have advanced. Let's move back up to the big picture. So one of the motivating uh, kind of theoretical questions in the article is this kind of uh, the the old chestnut in in the field of what is the role of elections in these uh, competitive autocracies? and yeah. or non-competitive autocracies, as the case may be. <laughs> so what do you think your article has to say about uh, about kind of how the field is typically thought about the function, mm-hmm. whether legitimating or otherwise, of these elections? Yeah, uh, this is a, I mean, this is a great question. I, there's a couple things that I think theoretically this article might be, might be notable for pointing out or might be useful for, for future scholars. I mean, one is, obviously, we have this big literature that looks at the effects and the legacies of authoritarian rule on uh, democratic transitions or democratic behavior in that kind of transitional period. And I think, uh, and and that includes obviously my one of my co-authors kind of recent recent book. Uh, And I think we wanted to kind of maybe try and flip that a little bit and look at the effects of democratic residues into authoritarian periods. And so what we kind of do in this case and maybe why this kind of enriches or, or maybe complements some of the existing work on electoral authoritarianism or competitive authoritarianism is it does kind of point out that there's there might actually be a cleavage in this regime over a kind of ideology. And it's not all about material benefits or things like that or kind of, you know, Islamist and secular or something like that. But it may, in fact, be kind of over this kind of core conflict about 
just the legitimacy of kind of the the way that this regime was instantiated. And so we do find find that as uh, maybe something that that theoretically is useful in the future. I think the second thing is that the way that scholars have looked at this question about elections, as you point out, you know, is that elections usually do a number of things. They allow kind of distribution of benefits to supporters, or maybe they allow, uh, you know, regimes to kind of cement their le- legitimacy or kind of demonstrate their power over opponents. And we kind of identify that, yes, I mean, particularly for regimes that come to power through a military coup, which is unfortunately kind of a, a, an increasingly common way that these regimes come to power, they do have this dilemma about needing to then kind of rely on elections to legitimate themselves. And this is a pretty common process. But what that doesn't really explain, at least as we kind of argue in the article, is these varying patterns of subnational engagement with these elections. And you have this very stark contrast between the regime whose incentives are to demonstrate that elections are the only game in town and that competition takes place through the institutions and so on and so forth. Whereas what we're showing is that subnationally, there's a lot of variation in how ordinary citizens, or at least our inferences about ordinary citizens, in how they are actually rejecting this institutional setup. They're not turning out to vote. They're spoiling their ballots. And so this contest over regime legitimacy is actually quite uh, a patchwork at the subnational level. So it's really interesting then in terms of, I guess, one final question is, you know, kind of thinking about what, if anything, this says about the broader patterns of the nature of the Egyptian political system. Uh, you know, if you're comparing, you know, between uh, the, the Morsi election and the Assisi election, that's one thing. But you have a broader perspective on this with the Mubarak regime and, as you said, the legacies of this kind of electoral competition. Do you see anything in there that might make us kind of rethink or, you know, how we might interpret the nature of the regime that CC has incorporated? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. I I mean, I think there's kind of t- two things that I would point to as that strike me as as particularly different than prior periods. I mean, you know, one is that the regime itself is not based on kind of the Mubarak era idea of like a, a very kind of limited but real pluralism. I mean, you had opposition actors, you had different social actors, you know, the business groups, the military as kind of being all of these groups that were kind of jockeying for influence inside the regime. And one of those arenas was obviously the electoral arena. And so you had opposition groups that could actually make electoral gains, they could run campaigns, so on and so forth. And I don't think we see that in the existing regime. I, I just, I, mm-hmm. I don't see that. I think the second thing that's interesting is that under, you know, Mubarak and then obviously under um, under his predecessors as well is there were these kind of party structures that allowed the regime to kind of mobilize supporters, direct benefits to their lower levels, kind of assign different competencies to, to party officials. And this is obviously part of a, a broader kind of research agenda in kind of authoritarianism. And I think it's interesting that we have not seen the regime in Egypt take any steps to create that type of national party or or kind of ruling party. And in that sense, kind of a traditional uh, mechanism for kind of social mobilization, control, uh, you know, dispersal of benefits and so on and so forth is kind of absent in Egypt. And in its place, it seems to have been replaced by uh, coercion, 
and to some extent kind of this populist spectacle uh, that the regime is offering. And so in some sense, it's, uh, you know, you, you do have the kind of basic institutional setup of elections and kind of non-democracy, but I think in the details and the mechanisms and the way that it kind of exists, uh, it's actually kind of striking how, how different it is. Well, that's really interesting. Uh, Stephen Brook, uh, and thanks also to uh, your co-author, Elizabeth Nugent, for her contributions. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me, Mark. Good chat. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's topical episode, we talked to Maya Sedani of the Tahrir Institute of Middle East Policy, a human rights lawyer. Uh, May, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you for having me. So I wish it were a more uh, pleasant conversation, but uh, this week, uh, you know, Alab Fattah, he has a book coming out. Um, he's been the subject of a number of op-eds in the Washington Post. He's on a hunger strike. He's one of the most famous Egyptian political dissidents uh, in prison, but one of many. Um, and you've been studying this issue and working on it for a long time. What can you tell us about Allah and the broader situation for Egypt's political prisoners? Sure. So first off, just speaking briefly about Ala Abdel Fattah, um, this is someone who is a liberal Egyptian activist and blogger, uh, someone who's a software developer by trade, and someone who went returned to Egypt around the time of the revolution in the hopes of making his country better. He saw an opportunity, he was inspired by the energy and spirit of people on the ground, and he did what he could as an engaged citizen um, to hold the government, hold the state uh, to a better account. But unfortunately, he has only been punished for, for this vision and this dream, a dream of a better Egypt. Ala is someone who has been detained under every Egyptian leader in his lifetime, if you can imagine. Um, and so across the board, Egyptian authorities have found him a threat uh, because of the power of his ideas and his commitment to improving Egypt. This is someone who we should be celebrating, someone who organizations around the world, international organizations of huge magnitude have recognized his impact and someone who, like you said, um, really presents a unique vision. Um, that's You can read more about that vision in his book, which is forthcoming, mm-hmm. like you say. Um, but focusing on Ala and his situation uh, specifically, he now finds himself in detention. He's been sentenced by an emergency state security court late last year, following a procedurally problematic trial in which he was regularly denied access to a lawyer, in which his lawyers during the trial could not even present a proper defense. Um, egregious, egregious violations of due process that make this uh, this system, um, this trial, a really problematic one. And now he's serving that sentence. He continues to be mistreated in prison. Uh, he's denied basic uh, things like reading a book or um, access to, to everyday things that, that keep you grounded and sane in such a difficult situation. And he's particularly targeted often because of how because of his impact and because of what he stands for uh, my heart is with him and his family and and he kind of represents to me this larger story this larger story of a crackdown on independent expression not just in the political space let me tell you but unfortunately also in the academic space the artistic space this is an Egypt, unfortunately, where political prisoner numbers are extremely high, where increasingly so since 2013, we've seen individuals 
arrested um, and sentenced, if not sentenced, uh, committed to kind of lengthy pretrial detention sentences with pro without proper access to due process in the thousands. Uh, and, and these individuals have varied. They haven't been from a single political group or political party, and they've varied across profession and background. They've varied across gender. Um, what, and what really unites this crackdown, unfortunately, is this kind of larger crackdown against any form of independent expression. And you know, for our uh, uh, political science audience, uh, I think people are aware, or they should be aware, the number of dual national um, academics who have been caught up in this. Yes, there are a number of academics who've been targeted, some of them dual national, some of them Egyptian. Many of these academics have been detained upon returning uh, from abroad. They include uh, someone like, um, who, who's not a dual national, but has kind of that a dual affiliation, mm -hmm. if you will, someone like Ahmed Samir Santawi, who is a uh, student at Central European University. He was um, targeted upon return while visiting his family. And he was similarly sentenced by a state security emergency court. Um, that sentence has since been uh, canceled. However, his retrial is ongoing and there are serious concerns about him and his access to due process as well. This is someone again, who should be celebrated, who's out there learning and bringing back that education and that knowledge to the country in the hopes of improving it. And his story parallels uh, parallel others as well. Patrick George Zecchi, someone who's Egyptian, was studying abroad in Italy. And similarly, uh, he was detained at the airports, targeted, tortured, and again, now being subject to trial by state security emergency court. And that trial is ongoing as we speak. So this, absolutely what you say about this crackdown on on academics and researchers is one that's very visceral and very true because it's a, it's a crackdown on knowledge, if you will. It's a crackdown on engaging with external parties, on bringing back new ideas, again, independent expression in a different form. Now, Allah uh, Abdel Fattah in particular is kind of something of an international celebrity. He attracts a great deal of external attention, but there's tens of thousands of Egyptians who are imprisoned for their political views or behavior, or simply because they were caught up in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, who don't have that kind of international spotlight. And what kind of what kind of recourse is there for people in this situation? What are human rights organizations or activists uh, able to do? A great question. And at, at times the toolbox varies, but I would say if I were to distill it, human rights organizations are often thinking about how they can best document the facts of a case. They can store and inventory out there, how they can provide legal support, whether domestically with the Egyptian lawyers on the ground or internationally in fora like the UN, with fora like the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention or with the UN Special Rapporteurs. Um, there's advocacy that's being done, direct engagement with governments, either that have a tie-in um, or governments that might be interested or have articulated some form of commitment to human rights and, and better governance in Egypt. And so human rights organizations, be they Egyptian or international, are often working in coalition to spotlight these cases. One of the things that's challenging, however, is just getting information about these cases. In, a, in Egypt today, post-2013, the space for accessing free flow of information is extremely limited, and it continues to be narrowed. There's been a control by the state over most, if not many, um, 
media outlets and media spaces. And the few that remain are often targeted. Outlets that are doing remarkable work like Med Belmast or El Manasa are often, are often targeted. Um, and so there's less and less information in the public discourse. So it makes it harder to get uh, the word out, harder to tell the story domestically. But there's also less and less access to information within the prison system and within the judicial system. Lawyers are systematically denied access to their clients, which means they, they often don't get to meet them on a regular basis in violation of Egyptian law. They aren't able to collect information in a safe and secure way. And that means that there's it's less likely for information to come out to the human rights community or the, lar or the community at large. And so there's this restricting narrowing space on information. And you can imagine what that looks like additionally for the prisoners that we don't even know. Um, Egypt has shown, unfortunately, that it's not just going after kind of these political figures or people who you and I might know or might read about, um, but that it's going after individuals who are expressing themselves in a variety of different forms. We saw the example of, of doctors following um, the COVID outbreak, the first COVID outbreak, doctors were being arrested for posting on social media about lack of PPE or insufficient response, things that are facts and things that every country was going through, not just Egypt alone, but instead a number of doctors were targeted. Very difficult to imagine with a group like that who don't have access to the human rights community, how their stories get out and how we learn about those cases and think about all the other fields mm -hmm. and professions, which are maybe a little bit removed, further removed from the human rights community. And then young women posting on TikTok or the LBGTQ community, um, all, all kinds of marginalized communities seem to be targeted. That's, that's absolutely the case. We saw this crackdown on, on TikTok, if you will. Women who were using TikTok uh, for personal reasons, uh, for, uh, to make a little bit of money, just like any influencer around the world, something that's absolutely normal, totally accepted and totally part of everyday life. Um, women who were just dancing and singing on TikTok, expressing themselves again freely, were targeted by this, by this regime, subject to problematic procedures, at times sentencing. Right now, in fact, we have ongoing a retrial of uh, Hanin Hossam, who is one of the TikTok vloggers, if you will. And if you can imagine, she is being uh, tried on charges of human trafficking. So just really, really, really egregious charges. The original charges, of course, were, were harming family values, if you will. Um, vague charges that can be instrumentalized, that are not standardized, that don't have definitions in Egyptian law, that can really be abused. Um, and these, these TikTok cases are particularly important because they also target women from a specific socioeconomic background and are intended really to control their ability to, to move from background and from their class and, um, and their situation. And so that's a, a great example. And of course, as always, the crackdown and targeting of the LGBT community among other minorities. There, there has been a crackdown on religious minorities as well. Um, even though this regime claims that it's the protector of religious minorities in actuality, we have individuals who are from religious minorities who've been subject to arrest. And I do think it's really important to, you know, draw that full spectrum understanding of it, right? Because at one level, it's you can point to the Islamists left over from 2013 and the Muslim Brotherhood, and you can look at extremely political uh, activists like Allah Abdel Fattah, but it is just this broad swath, tens of thousands of people getting caught up in this system, which seems to be kind of a really systemic uh, feature of this regime. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Unfortunately, when we look at political prisoners in Egypt today, we, we see Islamists, we see non-Islamists, we see people who are politically engaged, we see people who have nothing to do with politics, we see women, we see LGBT, we, we see Muslims, we see uh, minority religious groups, we see social media, the everyday right, citizen right. social media user, but we also see economists. So it really runs the gamut, unfortunately. And like you said, goes to show just how systematic this crackdown is, how it's facilitated by problematic laws and legislation, by practices, by a sense of impunity among security officials as well, who know that they can continue um, to partake in behavior like this without properly being held to account. When you talk about the crackdown on information, uh, it's obviously, I think, worth mentioning, uh, for example, the, the Egyptian Initiative on Personal Rights and Hosan Bagat and, you know, kind of NGO civil society that are trying to do exactly what you say, document and uh, kind of have some form of accountability on human rights behavior and, frankly, the law um, and being targeted for doing so. Absolutely. I think so far the conversa our conversation has really focused on political prisoners, but that doesn't even touch the other ways in which this information crackdown has closed, right? We talked briefly about the closure of the media. Civil society is, is a significant part of that, this crackdown on civil society um, with a variety of different tactics. Uh, from travel bans being issued on key civil society individuals who can no longer travel outside and engage with other civil society organizations or engage with bodies like the UN, um, to asset freezes that are placed on individuals who work with civil society or the organizations themselves, making it extremely difficult for them to continue their work. Um, and, and these civil society organizations are, like you say, at the, at the heart of documentation efforts, but they're also at the heart of leading a peaceful vision for change. Organizations like EIPR are ones that are actively thinking, how can we improve laws? They're also thinking how we can work with the government when appropriate to improve the situation. And so these organizations should be allies for the Egyptian regime rather than viewed as threats. Um, and that's an unfortunate short-sightedness on the part of the regime to alienate and to shut out anyone who dreams of a better Egypt. It's one last question, you know, sitting where you are in Washington, um, you know, the Biden administration came in talking about putting human rights back on the agenda. Um, have you seen any evidence of that? And are there any opportunities there for more effective um, kind of engagement by Americans, if not by the government, in terms of trying to help these Egyptians suffering under these conditions? I think we, uh, many of us in the policy space were quite encouraged when we saw the Biden administration talk about no more blank checks for, uh, for Trump's favorite dictator. We were encouraged by some of the language, some of the engagement early, even during the campaign. Um, then nominated Secretary Blinken talked about the crackdown on EIPR. There was a lot of positive language, I think. And to some degree, that positive language has continued. The, the administration has continued to talk about centering human rights, and they've continued to raise individuals' names, uh, situations' names, both privately and publicly. But unfortunately, the words have not been enough. And unfortunately, the reality is Egypt has continued to get access to high-level officials in the Biden administration, um, often at times where, at, unfortunately, can send a message of impunity or can send a message that human rights are secondary to the conversation. Um, Egypt has been able to optimize, unfortunately, situations like 
uh, the situation in Gaza or other regional developments kind of sidestep the human rights conversation and focus attention on the role that it plays regionally or otherwise. And all too often, unfortunately, US officials have fallen for that. Um, I'd like to see a more, much more serious conversation on conditionality of aid. Um, We've seen some some steps to that effect, but often it's undone by things like weapons sales. Um, I'd like to see the U.S. consider using tools that exist out there, like global Magnitsky sanctions against individuals who are committing human rights abuses and who we should not be welcoming into this country or whose assets should not be in our bank systems. There are a lot of different tools that this administration can use to send a stronger message on Egypt. And unfortunately, it hasn't been there. When we've taken one step forward, at times it has meant taking two steps back. And I think that that unfortunately words are not enough. They're important and we welcome them and I hope to continue to see them. Um, just yesterday, in fact, Secretary Blinken mentioned by name um, human rights lawyer Mohamed al-Baqir when, when presenting the State Department human rights reports from a global perspective. So I think we all know and recognize that Egypt is in a horrific situation with regards to treatment of political prisoners. Um, but what are we going to do about it? And I think there's many, many, many smart people inside and outside of government who have solutions on how we can maintain a relationship with Egypt, how we can help Egypt on the things that it needs from a regional perspective, but also hold Egypt to account for these violations against its citizens and against citizens of other countries as well. Well, thank you, Maeve, for joining us. Of course, Mark. Thank you for having me.